You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to the Washington Post. I'm Yasmin Abutalib, a White House correspondent here at The Post. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Janet Wright, the CDC's Director for the Division for Heart Disease and Stroke Prevention. Dr. Wright, thank you so much for joining us here today. Truly a joy to be with you. So I will start by admitting I was a longtime health reporter and had no idea that heart disease was the number one killer of women in the US. So with that confession, I would like to ask the audience, how many of you knew before today's event that heart disease was the number one killer of women? Okay, just me. (laughs) Making you feel bad, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I was trying to open it up. Thank you. Well, Dr. Wright, I'm so happy that you're here today to talk about your work on this issue. So I think we're supposed to have um, an infographic from your office that highlights some startling facts. Here we go. Heart conditions kill more women in the US every year than all cancers combined. Yet most women don't understand that heart disease poses a significant health threat and is the number one killer. Why do you think that is? I think um, I think we have a certain amount of denial about this. I think the facts have been out there for quite some time, but the idea that our lives could be cut short or that we could be disabled by a condition is so abhorrent that we would suppress that information. We're busy, we've got lots going on, and it's hard for us to hear it. Hearing it, that heart disease is the number one threat, also means that we need to do something about it. And before we get into what we can all do to make sure that we rewrite uh, what has been the trend in this country, um, I just want to say that all of you who raised your hands, I want you to go out there and make sure that everyone you touch, male, female, uh, everybody that you contact also knows what you know about women's number one health threat and what we can do to prevent it. Well, there are a number of risk factors that are shared by men and women from high blood pressure to obesity. What are some of the risk factors that are specific to women? Yeah, there, there are specific risks for women, but what we are seeing is, is even a lack of control of those risk factors that are shared. So we know that um, physical inactivity, diets that are high in processed foods, um, diabetes, uh, being overweight, and certainly high blood pressure apply to men and women. But throughout the life course, I guess I I should say there is a newsflash here in terms of the science. Women and men are different. And not only are women and men different, but women are different across the life course. So a woman, uh, a girl, is quite different from a woman in early ages and teens and 20s. And then with aging, women continue to evolve. We're just fascinating throughout the entire life course. And so not only are we different than men, but we also are different, which has been a bit of an impediment uh, to view us as a research subject because we're constantly changing. That's one of the reasons not enough women have been in clinical trials is that we're a terrible research subject because we've got lots of variables going on. Thank goodness that is being resolved and through the work of many of you and the organizations that you may represent. But um, we're continuing to explore what those differences are and they extend beyond the biologic 
to how do we access care? How do we access care differently given the demands on our time uh, and the responsibilities that we have? And so those are areas of discovery. Um, I'm, I'm just delighted to be on the panel today with experts in this field who've devoted their careers from the start to uncovering these differences and beginning to plug the gaps in research, including applied research, like actually how do we make what we know work, work for women. Well, we have an audience question from Jean in Texas who asks, what specifically is being done to address how women's heart issues are different and equally important to those of men? Yes, um, lots of research going on, uh, lots of adaptation. I'll say that my division uh, focuses a lot on what's called implementation science, is again, how to take what's been proven to work in a clinical trial and make sure that it works in communities around the country. Does it work in uh, care delivered by a federally qualified health center? Does it work in a big health system? Does it work in a large community? Um, and so um, that research is going on, and not just uh, as, again, um, clinical trial research, which is critical, but this implementation science. Can you talk to us a little bit? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, maybe I could just give an example of Please. that. Um, so we know that women, for example, who've had a heart attack or a stroke or they've had an angioplasty or surgery, um, all people who have had those kinds of events or procedures should be referred to cardiac rehabilitation. It's a fabulous set of services that address lifestyle, address the risk factors, including stress, um, and help people. I've heard so many patients tell me they're healthier after their heart attack than they were before. What we know is that fewer women than men get referred to cardiac rehab. Of the women who are referred, fewer actually initiate cardiac rehab and fewer complete. And then when you look at women by race and ethnicity and even by age, um, the disparities get even worse. So what can we do to adapt the traditional cardiac rehab for a woman's busy life, for the responsibilities where she may be taking care of others at home, um, and trying to balance uh, that uh, life-giving uh, service of cardiac rehab with uh, her demands? Those adaptations are happening. Virtual can help. That's so fascinating, and I, I want to dive into it more, but I just first want to ask, because I think this is a, a question a lot of us have, which is how do heart attacks look different for women than for men? I'm so glad you asked me that question. How many people think that uh, a woman has vastly different symptoms than a man when they have a heart attack? No. So I'm glad we're having this conversation. I didn't raise my hand this time. Yeah. <laughs> so if you, if you look at big studies, and 80% uh, of people who are having a heart attack will complain of, quote, chest pain. 80%, male and females, 80%. Maybe a little bit higher in men, but not by much. The problem <laughs> uh, is that, first of all, we do a very bad job of describing what heart pain really feels like. We call it chest pain. When you hear the word pain, I think of smashing my finger with a hammer or something that's sharp. And pain that comes from a heart attack is pain of muscle that's starved of oxygen. It's similar to when you were a kid, maybe some of you still, run really hard or you run for a distance and you feel a cramping kind of feeling in that muscle because it's not getting enough oxygen. 
The same sort of feeling happens in the chest when someone is low blood flow, having angina or a heart attack. It is a pressure, a tightness, a heaviness. It, it feels oppressive. Many women will want to unhook their bras and it doesn't help. Um, but if you ask somebody if they're actually having pain, some people will even say no, um, because it's not pain in the sense that most of us think of it. So it's more chest pressure, tightness, or heaviness. What we do know about women as a group uh, is that women tend to have describe more symptoms beyond chest pain. So they may describe feeling uh, short of breath, or it's hard to get a breath. Many will describe nausea. Sometimes the pain is radiating, but that can also happen. All those things can also happen in men. I honestly wonder, and I don't have any data in this regard, but we know that women, girls, start talking earlier than men. Women tend to be a little more verbal. Are we just more in tune with our bodies and more able to describe what we're going through as opposed to really experiencing something that men don't experience? I don't know. I've taken care of hundreds and hundreds of people. And most commonly, people will have that chest pressure or tightness. It's not a different sensation. That's, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, well, this year marks the 60th anniversary of the start of American Heart Month. Despite improvements in cardiovascular mortality for women in the past two decades, heart disease in women continues to be understudied and underdiagnosed. What are some of the reasons for that? Yeah, I think uh, it has taken us a long time to recognize the differences and to realize the opportunities to actually improve women's cardiovascular health by getting at the roots of the problem. And so ginning up those engines has taken a while. There is an increase, and you'll see today, an amazing set of women who, again, have devoted their lives to women's cardiovascular health, and they'll be able to share their uh, knowledge with you. But it's taken a while for us to get more women into the field. It does make a difference. We know in care, the more concordant the clinical person is with the person that they're serving, the more likely they are to have a communion that results in therapeutic outcomes, better health outcomes. And so we think that getting more women into healthcare will also help improve uh, the health of women. I am very worried about trends that we're seeing right now, particularly in the 35 to 64 year old age group for women and men, but it's for heart disease and stroke outcomes, stroke deaths and heart disease deaths. In that workforce, in those who are caring for children and often caring for their parents, um, we're seeing death rates go up. We're seeing heart attacks occurring in younger and younger people, including women. And in fact, the rate of rise is higher for young women than it is for men. We've got to get at the root causes of why this is happening and make sure that the care that we deliver is tailored to each sex. Um, Really interesting data show that women who are admitted, younger women who are admitted with a heart attack, are more likely to bounce back into the hospital. And in one particular study, the reason they bounced back in the hospital was more often for non-cardiac causes than for cardiac causes. And so you start to wonder what's happening in the home or that support structure that helps that woman stay healthy outside the hospital. Does she have the support that she needs? So getting at the social needs is increasingly important when you look at women's health. I want to talk a little bit about how women are identified for heart disease. 
Most diagnostic tests and treatments are based on surveys and studies using men. How does that harm female patients and how do you see that impacting diagnosis in women? That's a great question. And I think I, I actually um, live the problem I'm gonna describe. I spent the first half of my uh, professional career taking care of people as a practicing cardiologist. Um, I am now, and very gratefully so, uh, added this awesome opportunity to work in public health, try to get at the root causes and prevent things that I used to try to treat. Um, what happens when you make a shift like that um, is that you go from taking care of one person at a time and the family, hopefully, to a population, thinking more broadly. What interventions could affect more people with a given um, uh, approach? And so I, I often worry that people who are on the front lines in emergency rooms and offices and clinics know the statistics that heart disease in, let's take younger women, is less common in women than in men. If you just took the whole population, it's a little less common in women than men. And so their index of suspicion that a heart problem could be happening in that woman at that moment is lower. They're thinking in terms of the population. And so what we want, of course, is for the index of suspicion to be high for women who might be experiencing several symptoms and that those women are treated um, seriously, they're listened to, and they are investigated. One of the ways to make sure that happens is, of course, for the individual clinician to have a high index of suspicion. The other way, a complementary way, is to have protocolized care, a protocol. So when someone has a certain symptom, in this case, chest pain, chest pressure, they get an EKG. Everybody gets an EKG, uh, and that's a first test. There are additional blood tests that can be done to confirm whether someone is indeed having a heart attack or at high risk for a heart attack. Evaluating the risk factors, blood pressure, diabetes, elevated cholesterol, and then always asking about physical activity and dietary history as well as family history, all of those things go into the equation that a particular clinician will use to determine whether a woman in this case will need additional testing. But we've got to make sure we've got systems in place so that no one falls below the cracks, beneath the cracks, through the cracks. Well, we have an audience question that I think very much relates to what you just laid out. Um, this is from Colleen in Ohio who asks, how frequently do cardiologists discount women's heart concerns what recourse do women have? I, I don't know how often it happens. There are multiple examples, and an organization uh, that you'll hear from a little later, Women Heart's been around for a long time and helped to lift up women's good uh, uh, examples of good care uh, and also uh, episodes where women have had to fight to be heard and fight to be treated. Um, what I would say is... Jasmine, I forgot the, last, the second part of your question. Can you ask the second part again? Of course. She says, how frequently do cardiologists discount women's heart concerns, and what recourse do women yes. have? Yes, yes, thank you. So the recourse, incredible re re uh, question about recourse. What I would encourage um, is <laughs> to trust your gut about your heart. I will tell you one of the most 
compelling things I've ever heard from a person, woman or man, is it's just not right. Something's not right. And in fact, if you all watched Latrice Baxter's uh, video, she actually says that I just knew something wasn't right. And so if you feel something is not right, you have to keep seeking care. It's a terrible thing to have to tell you, but that's what you have to do. That is your burden to keep saying it's not right, and then you've got to keep searching for someone who can hear what you're saying and can uh, at least start the process of finding out whether it is your heart. Well, you talked in the beginning about how women can be frustrating studies because their bodies change so much. So related to that, I want to ask a pregnancy-related question um, because there's been a lot of reporting and attention in recent years over maternal deaths with a great focus on preeclampsia and other blood pressure-related complications. So how does everything that we've been talking about today with regard to how women are diagnosed and treated made more complicated during pregnancy? Yes. Um, first of all, I would say, in addition to being grateful to the Washington Post for featuring and talking about women's heart health, I'm so grateful for the national conversation that's going on now about maternal health. A large portion of what happens uh, to cause death during pregnancy and following pregnancy and orders of magnitude more complications during pregnancy that are not fatal, large proportion of those are cardiovascular disease. And most prominent among those is high blood pressure. Currently, more women are going into pregnancy with existing high blood pressure, often undetected. We can get into why it is so often undetected. But undetected high blood pressure. Other women who may go in with a normal blood pressure can develop high blood pressure during that pregnancy. That hypertension of any sort during pregnancy marks a woman for a lifetime and early onset of cardiovascular disease, lifetime risk and early onset. It's like a tattoo that you get. And then um, we all need to be watching that woman and she needs to be watching herself for the development of risk factors in heart disease. So what can we do about that? Um, first of all, th again, the national conversation about maternal death, uh, maternal mortality, has opened up opportunities for us to all learn more about something like hypertension, something entirely controllable, treatable, fixable. We just have to make sure that every woman has a monitor if she is at risk or has had high blood pressure and knows how to use it, and that she is in communion with a clinical team that can help her manage her blood pressure. I mean, she may find out that, that her blood pressure was only transiently elevated and doesn't need any additional attention. But knowing what your blood pressure is, what things raise it and lower it, um, that puts the power in your hands to then have a dialogue with the clinical team and keep you out of harm's way. Well, we have a couple minutes left, and so I want to get to the heart of your work, which is prevention. Um, you know, your work is, is largely focused on prevention, helping women understand lifestyle factors and other steps they can take to not get to the step of, of being diagnosed. So um, when you look at the sort of landscape of cardiovascular deaths, do you think a lot of them are preventable? And if so, how? Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, statistics show that about 80% of heart disease and stroke are preventable. 80%. And that's the number that just 
it drives me because if we know generally and even specifically what works, controlling blood pressure, controlling lipids, being a little physically active every day, fruits and vegetables in the diet, as much stress reduction as we can generate, if we know what works and we're not delivering it, that's not acceptable. And so, especially because we can prevent this misery uh, of heart disease and stroke. So our division um, invests in state health departments all over the country, 50 state health departments in DC, as well as territories, um, to do the things at a community level that helps keep people healthy. And that's true across all CDC uh, in terms of physical activity in the community, connections, which are very important, um, dietary approaches, and also controlling um, uh, blood sugar. There's a whole diabetes division. So there's a uh, center of chronic disease prevention and health promotion, and we're part of that. Well, we've got about a minute left, so I think I'll ask, um, what lifestyle changes would you recommend most to help prevent the onset of these diseases? I'm really glad you asked that. Um, the answer is in small steps sustained over time. While many of you may have run marathons or you're triathletes or you're doing some fantastic uh, excessive form of stuff that I also have enjoyed in my life, the ticket to health is doing one or maybe two small things but sustaining it so that you're doing it every day. It's like those folks who talk about the interest accruing and some investment and you know, over time, the same thing is true in health. So if you're not physically active at all, five minutes a day, just commit to five minutes a day, but keep that up. And pretty soon five turns into seven, turns into 10. If you can um, do a low sodium, uh, uh, if you would reduce your daily sodium intake by a little, makes a huge benefit over time. You, you get the point. That's the ticket to health, and it's also a sort of sneaky way to sneak yourself into health. Well, Dr. Wright, I think we could sit here and talk about this all day, but I unfortunately have to leave it there. So CDC's Dr. Janet Wright, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Good morning and welcome back. I'm Frances D. Sellers, an associate editor here at the Washington Post. And I am delighted on this snowy morning to welcome my guests, Dr. Alexandra Lansky, who joins us from the Yale School of Medicine, Dr. Ramesh Matsari, who comes here from GW, not so far, and Alicia Chong Rodriguez, who is the founder of Bloomberg Tech. A very warm welcome to you all. Thank you for joining us. Um, I really want to start this morning um, with that intro video. There were some stunning numbers there. Um, Alexandra, it said that less than a quarter of physicians and less than half of cardiologists feel equipped to assess the specific uh, cardiovascular needs of women. How can that be? And should we be training physicians in these wellness uh, and, their, and wellness checkups to recognize things that they're missing at the moment? Yeah, I think, I think we need to, I, I want to put it in context. So rewind time about two decades. And if you look at the cardiovascular mortality trends between men and women, end of 1990s, early 2000s, was when we saw the peak of mortality in women and of far exceeding that of men. And what we've seen over the last two decades 
through these types of programs, through the American Heart Association, the societies, etc., we've seen a dramatic decline in the mortality of women. In fact, now very similar between women and men. So what I would say is we still have a problem. There's no question about it. Mm. But I think it's important to put it in context how far we've come in the last decades, um, really to increase awareness um, of patients, but mm. also physicians. So to address your question, you know, I, I think we still see disparities. There's no question about it. When we see patients, uh, women coming into the emergency room, we still see delays. We still see delays of women uh, going to the cardiac catheterization laboratory when they're coming in with an ST elevation myocardial infarction. Say those words more slowly. We have a very educated audience, but we have a broader audience too. So, And, uh, you know, it's something that we need to continue to work on. So these are women coming in with distinct signs of um, cardiac problems, but they're still experiencing delays. And they're still, we're still seeing de delays. We're still seeing disparities. So Ramesh, um, I'd love to show a cartoon that ran, and I think it's going to come up um, with a, a story we had in the post before, um, which is just about those disparities, and I think you've taken a look at it. But, but this suggests that, that women who visit the emergency room have wait 29% longer than men for interventions. Tell me what's going on here. Are we just not recognizing these symptoms in women, or women express their pain differently, or... Can you sort of tell me from a doctor's point of view <laughs> um, what's going on? So the issues are twofold. The first one is that uh, there is lack of awareness on women's side for recognizing the early signs of the heart attack. Right. Uh, so they present a little late. Right. Uh, they may not take um, symptoms of heartburn, jaw pain, arm pain okay. as seriously, especially younger women. Yeah. And when they decide to seek um, care, we in the emergency room um, don't take those symptoms seriously, especially in the younger women. And I think that women younger than the age of 65 should be the target of awareness and education uh, for both patients and uh, physicians. I think that we have failed to recognize that the very traditional risk factors and the classic symptoms that apply to men mm. do not necessarily apply to women. We are learning that a lot of sex-specific risk factors should be taken into consideration when we assess risk. Um, and the guidelines really advocate for incorporating a lot of non-traditional risk factors in assessing risk when we are um, treating patients. Can you make that just a little bit specific for me? When you see a patient coming in, how do you see a woman and think, um, what should I be looking for in a, in, a, in a way that's different from what I look for in a, in a man? Uh, women tend to present with, a lot of them tend to present with chest pain, but they also express a lot of associated symptoms that might mask the core symptom of chest pain. The chest pain itself may not be the crushing chest pain, uh, but it could be symptoms that resemble heartburn or uh, indigestion. They may have jaw pain. They may be short of breath. They may simply just feel really tired and fatigued. Hmm. Um, and I think that if we think of women, in, even in the reproductive age, as high risk for coronary disease, we will have a much lower threshold for getting an immediate EKG, checking blood tests, and calling for consultation, and really thinking of them having a heart attack as opposed to having atypical chest pain or non-cardiac chest pain. 
Felicia, I'm going to come to you in a minute to ask a little bit about the technology at work here. But before that, Alexandra, just back to you on this notion of misdiagnoses or missed opportunities. You've, you've, you've talked about progress and change, but can you pinpoint exactly how that's coming about? Because women still, when they have heart attacks, are more than twice as likely, is that right, to die as men? I mean, that's, these numbers are stunning to me. Even I mean, <clears throat> yes, that's true. We, but but we, my point was we have we have come a long way. Right. We have made a difference. The the the, the differences and the disparities continue to be there, and I think we mm -hmm. need to continue to to work on this. Um, you know, one thing that you mentioned was the what I call the age paradox. Uh, this whole issue of young women coming in with symptoms, and, and that's the group of, of women where we're seeing the excess mortalities. When you're talking about the twofold higher mortality rate, right. it's really in the younger age group. It's not in the older patients. In the older patients, we have come around to understanding that this is uh, a disease that affects them, and we, we're, we're, we are doing the EKGs, and mm -hmm. we are doing the diagnosis. It's in the younger women where we don't, we don't assume, or we're not thinking that this is an, a disease that affects them, and where the right. symptoms, and, and young women don't recognize this, right? right? Uh, you know, the, you may be at home with your kids, and, right. and oh, I've got, you know, I've got this feeling in my chest, but let me keep on working on whatever I'm doing, and I'll cook the, uh, the meal. <laughs> but and you, you're not coming in, so right. we're seeing the bigger delays in right. the young patients. The the differences in the symptoms are much more accentuated in the in the younger patients, and all those delays really translate into worse outcomes. So Alicia, here you are. You founded Bloomatech. It's a perfect transition from this. What on earth took you to invest and and innovate in this area as a young woman? I mean. What was the launchpad for Blumatech? Yes, thank you. Well, I, my background is in electrical engineering and computer science, and I was part of MIT's computational cardiovascular research group when I had access to huge data sets of all of the, the studies that are used today for clinical decision making. So having access to that, seeing that everyone in my lab was using all of these data to generate AI tools, there was a moment in time when we realized, oh my God, only one-fourth of the data is female. 25% of the data is women's data. And we're training these algorithms with mostly male data. And that, that was eye-opening. Then we saw all of these statistics that have been discussed today. And with them, I asked, oh my God, so many women get heart disease. Is, is there someone in my family that had heart disease? And I am proudly named Alicia after my grandma. I'm the youngest granddaughter. And, I'm, and my grandma had dedicated her life to women's health as an obstetrician back in a time when women were rarely allowed to obtain medical degrees. And my mom, as an adult, told me, oh, yes, your mom, my, her mom, died from a heart attack. And, and, and I knew that she had died when I was 13 years old, but it was eye-opening. Oh, my God, my grandma, that I am so proud to be in, like, I have pictures of her in a full room full of men, and I studied engineering. I was typically two women in a class of 40, of 40 students. So learning this as an adult, it's a huge eye-opening moment for me that 
this needs to make progress. One of my co-founders, she actually lost her mom when she was 12 years old and her mom was 44 to a stroke. So these are life altering things that need better technology because for such a long time we've had evidence. We have the science that shows physiological differences. Now we need the tools and as technologists, we decided to do something about it. And you've come up with a tool, the Bloomer Bra. Tell us yes. about that because it's a very exciting, very specific idea. Yes, so we created a garment that has sensors. Uh, we call it the bloomer tag. And the bloomer tag has the, uh, the ability to continuously and remotely acquire physiological data. And by wearing this bra, you can track symptoms and patterns and it gives women an easier way to collect data and create an automated journal on her phone. It can integrate to any type of bra, uh, uh, a sports bra, maternity bra, a post-surgical post, bra, and it collects huge amounts of data, physiological data from her body. We have heart rhythm, breathing, posture, temperature, movement, and it generates report for better communication with her doctor. It can be used for early detection management and to generate new digital biomarkers that are specific to all of these decisions conditions that we are seeing that where there's lack of patterns that we can track with this uh, to accelerate progress in women's cardiovascular care. It's just fascinating. Um, Alexandra, we're getting um, audience questions and I want to read you one that's just come in. It says, um, it comes from Donna in Washington State who asks, what parts of the healthcare system act as barriers to women's cardiovascular health as opposed to men? It's a great question. Seems to me it's from the beginning to the end. I think it's all along the way. All I mean, we way. see it, and and you know, I what we don't want to do is blame anyone in right. in that uh, in that journey. I think, but it's it's from the patient to we see delays from symptom onset to presentation to the hospital. So let me follow up on that question. Women are the caregivers, right? Women t go to hospitals more with their children, with their families. They, they do. arrange, they, they do. make the appointments for their husbands. Why are women, they getting... women take women, care of everybody good. else around uh -huh, themselves, but they don't take okay. care of themselves okay. is the problem, right? So right. if you have your laundry list of things you have to do that day, that's what you're gonna do before taking care of your own symptoms. Huh. So, that's number one, but I think once they come to the emergency room, that first diagnosis, so we've seen this time and time again, EKGs not being done, women coming in with heart attacks where it's, you know, they're in early shock, we're seeing less lactate levels, less troponin levels, et cetera. So we're making that diagnosis, even 15 minutes counts. Oh. So it's every minute is counting. And then the time it takes to get to the cath lab. I think once the patient is in the cath lab, whether you're a male or female, you know, you're there, you're you've, there. You've, you've reached your destination and, and I think the care is the same. But I think it's really all along, all along the way. And Ramesh, you've been working on minimally invasive surgeries um, for women. Tell me what progress you're making there and what you see as the, the, the future. I think minimally invasive approaches to a lot of um, uh, cardiovascular um, diseases is the way to go. We have come a long way over the last 50 years when we first started doing angioplasty, we needed bigger devices, um, which came with a price, which was complications related to the bigger devices. But the minimally invasive approach has actually served women very well, uh, because in most of the cardiovascular trials, women um, have been the subject of um, increased complications. 
bleeding complications, uh, device-related complications. And part of it has to do with the fact that the earlier trials um, are biased. Uh, women are underrepresented in trials. Right. Um, and we have always believed in equality in medicine, which means to provide the same thing to everybody. Mm. Uh, but we really need to focus more on uh, equity, which means that you go an extra mile and provide the support that's needed for the ones needing the most support. Right. Um, in the cardiovascular space, uh, we really need to enhance women's enrollment in trials because there is so much we right. don't know. Um, maybe women had increased bleeding risk because the same uh, antiplatelet and anticoagulant and blood thinning regimen right. uh, for men was too much for women. Maybe right. we don't understand the, uh, the way women metabolize these medications. So minimally invasive approaches at least have eliminated any uh, large device-related complications in right. women. Right. Um, they reduce uh, the recovery time, and in general, they are much safer. We've right. seen that in angioplasty space. We now see it in treatment of structural heart disease, where we replace open-heart surgery with catheter-based um, interventions. So it is the future of uh, cardiovascular care. And, and talking about the future, Alicia, what you're doing is gathering data that, of course, can inform the future. I'd love to know about some of the findings you're getting from the Bloomer Bra and other work that you're doing in Femtech. So, so for us, it's very rich to realize that some of the existing technologies that that doctors use, how they have demonstrated to already be biased, right? We, we hear different sensors that depend on a, a color or tone of the skin because they're imaging technologies, so they will have technical influences. We hear in, in the standard of care when, when people are having a heart attack, they will get a troponin test. And this troponin test is based on biotin technology and biotin technology will be affected if you're taking vitamins for hair and nails with biotin. So the FDA has issued warnings around this, but it's, it's systematic issues that, that we need to change. So we are aware that we're designing something since its inception, thinking about female bodies, thinking about her lifestyle, right? And thinking about gathering all of these data so that the, we can generate the future of digital biomarkers. Because unlike traditional biomarkers like blood or weight or blood pressure that are just a picture in time, a digital biomarker has the power of being continuous, right? Like you can see when there was a shift. And if that shift makes sense with your lifestyle, it makes sense with your genetic markers, or if we have to look into it and talk with the doctor. So we, we have that power of personalizing healthcare for her because we can see in a continuous way when things are changing. So Alicia, I actually there's an audience member who's asked this question and this question is very much on my mind. It's about AI and, and the bias that can come with using AI. So let me ask the question that comes from Sabrina in DC who says, with the increasing use of AI, what tools and programs are being used or developed as proactive measures for women to track and measure their heart health risks. So AI, good, right? Very useful, but also potential. Well, it, it's like they say, garbage in, garbage out. It all depends on what <laughs> data you're garbage using out. to train. And, and I do think that there's, there's an importance to realize, okay, we already know that there's a gap in the data. We right. need to do an extra effort so that we can accelerate progress using AI instead of perpetuating problems right. that we already have on a systemic <clears throat> level. Right. Ramesh, we're talking about hospitals and also data collecting, but some of the, the changes that we can make are lifestyle changes. 
what do you see, Ramesh, in terms of helping women deal with um, diabetes, smoking, exercise, and other factors that can help promote heart health? What kinds of changes do you see happening, or do you promote yourself? Uh, we have no uh, choice but to leverage technology in the future of cardiovascular care. Um, and I think what's really important is to make sure that it's accessible to our target population. If we're targeting women, uh, we need to make sure that uh, whatever technology we're incorporating into their care is accessible to them. Sometimes we need to meet women where they are. And then there is room for um, educating uh, both women and their doctors about where they are along the spectrum of risk and what needs to be done to eliminate their risk and uh, how the technology can help us uh, achieve that goal. Um, I think that um, one interesting point about AI and technology and cardiovascular care is that we need to be mindful of the fact that the population we're interested in targeting might be the one that's resistant to embrace the technology. So um, we have to make it easier for women who, as we mentioned, are taking care of the entire family um, to have access to the remote monitoring. Then they need to have education as to what, what we're looking for right. uh, in the remote monitoring. A lot of education about seeking um, medical attention with the early signs of cardiovascular disease. Um, one idea that um, uh, the awareness campaigns are really focused on is um, use the technology, but also uh, recruit the community um, organizations and existing networks to right. help us mm -hmm. implement the um, public health approaches. Yes. We, we, we learned so much about during COVID. <laughs> exactly. But we also have this great um, potential game changer. You tell me, Alexandra, if it is a true gauge or they are a true gauge changer. The, the weight loss drugs we now have, Ozempic and Wegovy. Uh, I mean, from your point of view, is this, uh, do you walk in the morning and think, wow, my job is going to be changed looking ahead? Uh, risk factors have gone or I think I think these drugs are remarkable. I mean, if you if you if you realize that seventy percent of the U.S. population is obese, right? Based 70%. on that seventy percent of our population, and it's moving around the world. This is something, and it's all over the place. Right. And honestly, these drugs, from what I have seen, are game changers. I have seen patients coming in that I've been following for years. They go on the drug, six months later, I have my follow-up appointment. They're on less cholesterol. Their cholesterol has come down, Whoa. the blood pressure has improved. We can come off of some of the blood pressure medications. I mean, obviously it's not everyone, but it's very impressive, very impressive results. So um, to me, this is definitely a game changer in terms of you know, new treatments and, and compliance, because we always have issues with compliance. Mm. I mean, the best patients, the ones that come in, it's a wake up call and they, they you know, go back to exercising and taking their medications. But that's a minority of our patients. Right. You know, most of our patients are actually, it's very difficult to change, to change yeah. their habits. habits. It gets, and, and time is against us, right? right? As you get older, it gets more and more difficult. So honestly, I think these drugs are, are really, definitely a game changer. So we're getting close to the end, running out of time, but I want to ask you about role models in this area. I think fewer than 4%, am I right, of interventional cardiologists are women. Um, what does that mean for, and Alicia, you're right at the heart of this question too. What does that mean to have fewer women 
role models in these key areas, even though we now have a female head of NIH and women at the top of the CDC, still, in practicing medicine, we don't have a lot of female role models. I'd love to hear just quickly from each of you what it means to see women in these positions and what it would mean to have a growth of women in leadership positions. We need more women. We need more women representation in, in our field. We need more women leaders. We've seen, again, we've, we, we're, we're slowly seeing a change and a shift, but we have such a long way to go. And I think having, having leaders in the field will help with the disparities that we've seen. Yeah. I think it's going to help with the enrollment of women in clinical studies. It's going to help with better understanding and, and focusing the, the research questions that we need right. to, to address. 4% is unacceptable. Ramesh. I have to remind the audience that uh, uh, the major breakthrough in having women-focused research studies date back to early 2000s, and um, that had to do with the fact that we had the first female head of the NIH, Dr. Bernadine Healy, right. and, uh, the, uh, uh, and Dr. Vivian Penn, who was um, leading the women research at the time. And uh, the breakthrough was that they um, funded Women's Health Initiative. Funded For the first health. time, we had um, real data collected on women, not just in the cardiovascular space, but other women-related diseases. And um, that was a breakthrough. So having women in powerful position makes a difference. Make, make Alicia, a difference. you started a, a femtech company. A quick word on that. Yeah. So, so for me, I, I'm a result of opportunities. I came to the U.S. thanks to the scholarship. And having 4% of women, the only thing is that I get to meet them. <laughs> I get to meet them. I get to be in these places with all of the cardiologists moving forward the needle that m my work is inspired by the work of women cardiologists that have moved the needle forward, that are doing the work, that have open women's heart programs, that are talking to patients every day and teach us as technologists what is, what is it that we need. And we've heard a lot of what we need here in this discussion today, which is so exciting. And, and yes, I, I, I was a fan, like a fan out. I just love finishing on that, that, that mm -hmm. fan message, that inspiring message. And I want to thank you all so much for joining us today, Dr. Lansky, Dr. Ramesh Rodriguez, and Alicia Chang Rodriguez. Thank, thank you all three for joining us today. Thank you. And don't go away. We'll be back soon with more of this fascinating topic. Thank you. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Selena Gore, and I am the CEO of Women Heart. We are the only patient-centered organization focused exclusively on women and heart disease. And this year is our 25th anniversary, so I invite all of you to celebrate this very special year with us. I'd like to introduce a very special person, a passionate patient advocate, a wife, a mother, a hiker, a kayaker, and my friend Latrice Baxter from Nashville, Tennessee. Before we start, I'd like to set the stage a bit. You know, we, we've heard this morning that heart disease is the number one killer of men and women. It is the cause of death for one in five women every year. 
60, women, 60 million women, or about 44% of uh, the female US population has some form of heart disease. But those numbers don't really give you uh, what, it, what it's like to live with heart disease every day. So I'd like to invite Latrice to join the conversation and start with your start to heart disease. So this heart disease journey, it was a funny start, wasn't it, Latrice? Yeah, absolutely. It's a funny and a not so funny kind of way. So I had a doctor prescribe me hibiscus tea for elevated LDLC. Yes, tea. And back then I didn't think much about it, but now, you know, I see how concerning that is because that doctor also knew my family medical history um, because I shared that, of course. My dad passed from a massive heart attack at 57. My mom battled diabetes until she passed at 65. My grandfather had multiple strokes. I lost an aunt and very recently a cousin to heart failure. So it's like heart disease has been like a shadow that kind of follows the family around for generations. And it became even more personal to me when I started having my own symptoms. Uh, I started to have shortness of breath and a extreme numbness in my left arm from the shoulder like to the fingers. And of course, I'm freaking out. So yeah. I contact my doctor, my new doctor. <laughs> I contact my doctor. Not the tea doctor. No, I, not the tea doctor yeah. at all. So I contact my doctor and um, he straight away refers me to a cardiologist. Went to the cardiologist. He's like, go take a stress test. I went to take the stress test, failed it immediately. <laughs> and um, I found myself later that night being driven by ambulance to Nashville um, to have open heart surgery. And I ended up having to have a double bypass surgery because I had a major blockage in my left main artery. Wow. And you said to me before that um, that actually wasn't when you realized you had heart disease. No. <laughs> I didn't realize I had heart disease until maybe a few weeks to maybe a month or two later when I went back for my uh, follow-up appointment. Mm -hmm. I thought that maybe it was like some fluke thing that had happened to me. I don't know, COVID-related. I wasn't sure. But yeah, I was told I actually had heart disease then, so I knew this journey was going to continue potentially. So, so along with the risk factors that Dr. Wright shared with us this morning, blood pressure, diet, exercise, stress management. Obviously, cholesterol management is one of the most important things we can do to improve our everyday heart health, which is what we talk about at Women Heart. We talk about everyday heart health as opposed to prevention. So can you share with us some specifics about how you finally got your, uh, the certain type of cholesterol, LDLC, under control? Absolutely. So basically, I, we talk, they talked about cardiac rehab earlier. I kind of put my own cardiac rehab together because I was one of those people who didn't go. And that was because the COVID numbers were so heavy. This was September 2020. Um, so I put together my own plan. Uh, first was dietary changes. I decided to add more leafy greens, reduce my salt and sugar intake. And back then, I panically switched to being a vegan. Mm -hmm. So it's just beans, 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 but now it's more <laughs> lean proteins. And uh, the second thing was moving more. I was already active before, but after, you know, I had to just take it slow through the healing process. So I started walking in my backyard. I would have my husband just peek out and make sure I hadn't fallen out or anything. And then I started walking at the park. 
and then I found some trails and I've been on the trails ever since. And then the third thing was reducing my chronic stress. Mm -hmm. So uh, what helped me with that was, and we know stress can be a killer. Yep. So yoga, meditation, and walking, honestly. So now I'm just regular stress, not chronic stress. And, <laughs> everyday stress. Yeah, yeah just regular yeah. everyday stress. And then it was getting the proper medication. So, you know, you leave the doctor after heart surgery with a big stack of prescriptions. But luckily now I only have to take a few things. I take a blood pressure medication, a blood thinner, and I started on a statin therapy, but my doctor and I seen that my uh, LDLC wasn't coming down very well. So he put me on non-statin therapy and I'm having a lot of success with that. And finally was creating my care team. So my primary care doctor is like my health coach. Mm. He takes the time, we talk back and forth, he listens well. And my nurse practitioner at my cardiologist's office, she's who I go to for my, just my standard checkups. And then I have my cardiologist who I see at least once a year or if I'm having some concerns. And um, thankfully I have them and they all work well together and they were able to help me navigate the insurance. Because just because you get prescribed a non-statin therapy or certain treatments doesn't mean you just get to roll up and get it from the pharmacy. That's right. So, unfortunately, uh, that's unfortunately. right. Yeah. So my insurance company, of course, they had they had things in place to kind of slow me down, I guess. So the doctor's office was able to um, help me to go between those organizations to get my medicine. Yeah. And in January, I switched insurance, and we had to do it all over again. But now I have everything, and I'm, I'm back in control of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, clearly you have successfully navigated what is a, a very complex healthcare system in this country. Um, and now I know that you advocate for others, with others. Mm -hmm. um, you've used your story. You've used your experience in a way that I don't think you've, you, you thought you were going to use at the very start of Correct. it. So I'd love for you to share with us what are some ways that you have used that story to help others and what are the platforms that you've used to do that? Absolutely. So yeah, um, I basically started my advocacy journey by accident. So I was just sharing my heart disease journey and kind of talking about my medicines and giving myself a shot on Instagram and TikTok, um, just talking to my little corner of the internet. and. Um, I was recruited to actually come to Washington and spend a whole day in like a patient advocacy boot camp where we, I learned about all kinds of patient advocacy things that I didn't know existed, right? Ultimately ending up with us having an opportunity to go to the Hill and actually speak to policymakers about the very things that I was going through with step therapies and prior authorizations and things like that. So I was able to talk to policymakers from my state, the great state of Tennessee. And um, so, yeah, I just I like to say I share inspiration and information on my on my uh, pages, just um, from a patient perspective to kind of make it all seem more relatable. Yeah. And what was the experience like being with other patients? That was the first time, presumably, you did that. Amazing. Uh, amazing. I actually have some longstanding friends from that meetup. Uh, when they come to Nashville, because one of them, he comes to one of the hospitals in my town, 
Uh, and when they come to town, we go have Mexican food. <laughs> we, we, pick, we make good choices, but we go beans, have Mexican beans, food. Beans, beans, right? beans, beans. Yeah. You can't go yeah. wrong there. Yeah. Yeah. So, Latrice, you are a perfect candidate to become a Woman Heart champion. Oh, wow. Now, you, you, you probably don't know what that is yet, so let me explain. So, Women Heart champions are women with heart disease who are fierce advocates for themselves, for others. They take their messages far and wide, including to Capitol Hill, where they were just two weeks ago, advocating for policies to improve heart health of women just like you and me. Um, they even advocated for um, a day, a special day, recognizing and raising awareness around LDLC. So, wow. you know, th this is a group of women that I think you would be a perfect Absolutely. Number I'm two. So to I'm going to pin you. Oh, she's pitting me. Absolutely. <laughs> I accept. So, Latrice, can you please share with us what is your, if you had one wish that you could, you could, please pin yourself. Go ahead. If you had one wish that you could um, share, with all the women in this country, all the women around the world, actually, who are living with heart disease, what would that, what would that one wish be? Uh, my one wish would be that um, women understand that you can, you can change your doctor. <laughs> like, I, a lot of times we want to be so polite, we're too polite to, to say, hey, something's not right here with you. Um, with our relationship, um, I don't feel like you're listening to me uh, or taking me seriously or you think um, I have some other motivations or whatever. So if you're not getting what you need from your healthcare team, then just be, um, be aware that you can change. You can fire them and, and you can find somebody else. There's yep. thousands of really, really amazing doctors um, for us to choose from. And you don't have to be stuck with someone who won't take you seriously. It's that important. Yeah, I think about um, the word partner that comes to mind. Absolutely. Uh, I think we see in our Women Heart community that when they realize that they can be empowered to advocate for themselves, that they can hold their health care providers accountable so that they can get the care that they deserve, that we all deserve. Absolutely. Right. Um, you use the phrase, uh, yesterday when we were speaking about what your journey is today from what it was before? Well, for me, I'm, instead of just surviving, I'm thriving now. Um, as the director mentioned before, some patients seem like they're much better after they have their um, heart event, and I, I feel that way. Yeah. I feel like I'm in some ways living a better life than I did before. You know, you're, you're truly a testament to the fact that heart disease doesn't have to be the death sentence that I think many people think it is. Um, you're thriving, and we are going to go hiking together after this, by We the way. have to. Um, and that is really, truly the spirit of Women Hearts. So I'm very excited to invite you into this sisterhood. I want all of us to um, thank Latrice for being so generous and sharing her story with us today. Um, and we look forward to, again, celebrating this special year with Latrice and with all of you. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
And I want to say a special thank you to Amgen and the Washington Post for this incredible opportunity to share a little bit about the patient experience um, in, you know, obviously a really important topic. Um, so now I will hand it back over to the Washington Post. And thanks again. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. My name is Akila Johnson. I'm a national health disparities reporter here at the Washington Post. It is my pleasure to introduce my guests today, Dr. Jennifer Ellis and Dr. Martha Galati. Thank you both for being here with us. Oh, thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Dr. Ellis, we're going to start with you. You are a cardiac surgeon, and you are also the co-chair of the Association of Black Cardiologists Health and Public Policy Committee. A quick note to our audience that ABC, which is the Association of Black Cardiologists, and today's sponsor, Amgen, have partnered on some of their research on this issue. So my question for you is, only 60% of women know that heart disease is the number one killer for women in minoritized communities. What is minoritized? That is black, Latinx, women from Asian communities. I don't like saying ethnic minority, so we say minoritized communities. Um, this figure drops to about third, one third for those groups. Can we talk about why there is this kind of information gap within specific communities? Well, heart disease is actually much worse than people actually think about. You know, so if, if there are about 50,000 women who die a year from breast cancer, 500,000 die from heart disease. And if you have breast cancer, you are more likely to die from heart disease than you are from breast cancer. So we don't really under, we, no one understands that heart disease is the number one killer in every group that you look at, black, white, male, female, um, unfortunately, gun violence is now hitting our, our teens, but before that it was accidents. But once you hit like 20 and above, it is the number one, number one killer. Um, and we don't want to hear about it. We don't want to think about it. Um, we think of heart disease as a, uh, a, a white disease. There, it's actually greater in, in blacks. It's actually greater also, we think of it as a male disease. It's actually greater in men. So if you have a white male versus a black female, she is at much greater, high, much greater risk, but she's also going to get less care. You know, she's saying she's at a higher risk. And so I was in a conversation with some friends this weekend, and one of the things that we're talking about when it comes to risk, this was an older woman who was sharing her particular story with heart disease, is that she had gone to the doctor short of breath, and she had said that she's kind of embarrassed because she just thought, you know, Maybe I just need to work out. Like, I'm, I'm always short of breath, right? Who isn't short of breath sometimes? And that when she finally mentioned it to her primary care provider, and thank goodness the primary care provider took her serious, next thing she knows, it was a rash of tests and specialists and all sorts of things. So I guess can we talk a little bit, too, about stigma or maybe disbelief when it comes to what we should be looking out for in these symptoms of, you know, if heart disease is the number one killer for everybody? Why is it something that people just don't, don't kind of recognize the symptoms. Dr. Galati, can you maybe address yeah, that? I, I think, again, I think it's the same point that women don't recognize themselves at risk. And I think we've not done a great job of educating our public. And particularly when it comes to people of color, I think that is a group that we've really let down. You know, we, we talk about these statistics every year during Heart Month. I, I feel like I've spent the last two decades doing this, but often the people at the table are not the people that should be at the table. We need to be in the communities. We need to be educating women about their risk. 
and particularly for black women. So for black women after the age of 20, really more than 50% of women have some form of cardiovascular disease if you include hypertension in that. And so how women don't know, it's surprising, obviously, we're in the field and we, we think everything has to do with the heart, but our patients seem always shocked. So I think we need to do far more education. Let's stay on that topic for a second. We have a question from the audience that, that kind of falls right into this. And it's from Imelda in Illinois who wants to know how can we ensure that underrepresented groups get tested and then how can we get them the help that they need to ensure that their hearts are healthy? So how do we make sure that they know they need to be tested for heart health and then how do we make sure they get the health that they need? So start with you, Dr. Guletta, and then I'm interested to hear what you have to say, Dr. Ellis. So I, I think the way we need it to be forefront in the healthcare community, because everybody deserves screening. Women know, they know if they need a pap smear, they know if they need a mammogram. We've done a good job at educating women about that. Why haven't we helped women understand what it means to have your heart assessed? I think that's where we need a campaign. We need to help our, our lay public understand it. And we need our healthcare community to be putting that at the forefront. When people come for their well visit, why aren't they leaving understanding their heart? Why aren't they leaving knowing if they're at risk? Because we now have great ways to assess risk, and yet most women will tell me they haven't been assessed. We meet them in the emergency room or on the cath lab or in the operating room, that's where we meet them. It's too late then. I mean, it's not too late. We, we can treat them, but why not prevent it? 80% of heart disease is preventable, and we are not doing good there. So let's, let's stay on that, on that topic of, of, of lack of education or, or lack of resources and, and why, why folks in, in these underrepresented groups don't know that and then what is a test for your heart? Like we say, how to get your heart tested. What does that even mean to, you know, for folks who are maybe thinking, okay, I'm here, I'm hearing that if I'm over 20, I probably have a 50% risk of like having this issue. What should folks even be asking for or talking about when they go to their, when they go to their doctor? Well, I like to, when I talk to my groups and whatnot, I like to, them to have this mantra of, could it be my heart? Because especially if you go to the emergency room with some chest pain or whatever, and they go, oh, you're fine. If you use the words, could it be my heart? And they go, oh, I don't think it's your heart. And then you go, well, but could it be my heart? All of a sudden, sometimes that ER doc goes, ah, maybe it's your heart. <laughs> um, and then looks at, uh, you know, for testing, it's, it's a little bit different for women than men. I mean, you know, one of the things that it's more of a stress echo rather than a standard stress test. Uh, going back to the very first talk about the CDC, the initial study was done, like the, one of the most famous studies was done only on men because it's easier. Men don't get pregnant. They don't, go, they don't have menopause. Um, so you can avoid some of these issues. Um, that's, and that's, the treadmill test was great for men. It is not as great for women. So a, a stress echo is a little bit better for women. But you know, when you say, could it be my heart? That's when you know what your cholesterol is. You know what your blood pressure is. You know what your good cholesterol and your bad cholesterol is. You know what your family history is. These are the things that, that are at the absolute um, minimum. And could I, could I mm -hmm. add to that? 
So we do risk assessment. Not everybody gets a stress test. I don't want people to leave thinking they all need a stress test. So they, But it starts with knowing if you're at risk. And so by taking your blood pressure, your cholesterol, knowing if you're diabetic or not, knowing your age, knowing your race, we put that into an equation that tells us your short-term risk, like in the next 10 years, and then your lifetime risk. So <clears throat> if you don't know your risk for heart disease, either one of those, then nobody's calculated your risk. It starts there. For people to actually, before they have symptoms, to know if they're at risk, that's what they need done. Mm. So let's stay on the topic of risk a little bit. And so, you know, Dr. Ellis, most coronary artery disease can be prevented or managed through lifestyle changes and treatment if caught early. But the healthcare system has done a poor job of identifying those at risk, especially women and people of color. So let's talk about specifically kind of what are the cardiovascular risks for black women in particular. Dr. Ellis? Um, so family history, diabetes, cholesterol, smoking, um, and a lot of family history actually is cholesterol, um, and then also uh, weight and overall condition. Um, one of the things about the African-American community, we have a different body image, um, and some think it's healthier or not, but you know, anorexia is not as prevalent in the African-American community. I mean, you know, if, if you, could you imagine going to your grandma and throwing up your, her good cooked food on purpose? <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't. You might not live through that. I'm dodging a wooden spoon right now. <laughs> <laughs> thought of it, right? So, um, and it also has to do with poverty. You know, if, if you go back 50 years, if you were thin, it was because you were poor. It wasn't a fashion statement. So we have a different image. And so to tell people that they need to lose some weight, and then not really give them any tools or reasons for it, and so you know that goes towards the diabetes. And that also then goes towards the family history because of the, of the survival. Um, but then the cholesterol and the blood pressure. Blood pressure is such an undertreated issue. I mean, how many patients do you have that don't take their blood pressure pills until they can feel it? And I say to them, if you can feel it, your head is about to pop off. Take your meds. You know, well, I don't like the way it makes me feel. Well, that's when you need to have a further conversation with your doctor. When I tell my patients is that you, when you take your medicine, it should feel like you're eating Tic Tacs. And if you said, if you eat these 12 Tic Tacs a day, you will live longer. People will be sure, I don't care. If you feel it, instead of just stopping your meds, which is something that happens in the African-American community, tell your doc, it made me feel bad. There are 25 different cholesterol medications. There are probably 50 blood pressure medicines. There are now so many different ways to treat diabetes we can find something that it should feel like you're eating pebbles. But the only way we know that your cholesterol is good is when we do the test. And so then when we think about women in the Latinx community, right, we've talked a lot about kind of gaps in education and kind of what the risks that black women need to know. Dr. Gulati, what are some of the, these kind of same conversations that need to happen in other communities of color with Latinx women, with, with other folks who are at risk for, for coronary yeah. art? Well, we need to be targeting everyone because it, because it is the leading killer. It doesn't really matter <clears throat> what your race is. And for certain races, the risk is high. For black women, it's high. For South Asian women, it's high. And we've ignored a lot of these communities. And I think that's where we need to be talking to them, talking in their language. If we need to be speaking the language, then we need to be there. 
We need to be communicating with examples that they identify with in their community. And I think the more that <clears throat> our healthcare community looks like the people we care for, the better it will be. Because right now, you know, we, we know that there's not very many, for example, black cardiologists. We need way more. Um, and we know that that's how we create trust in the community, when we look like you. And that's really been a problem in cardiology and for women. I mean, we don't have enough women in cardiology, and then we don't have enough people from diverse backgrounds. And I think when we ch as we're changing that, we are able to go to our communities, and we know where to access our communities as well. And going to trusted places, whether it's places of worship or community centers, that's the way that we will be more trusted in these communities that often have barriers to accessing healthcare too. I mean, if you know if they don't have insurance or inadequate insurance, people only go to the hospital when they're really sick. And so we don't get a chance to be proactive and prevent heart disease. Well, can yes. I just, I uh -huh. just wanted to add to that. It's also some cultural competency. I had a very, a very nice fellow. He was not in any, any way mean or, um, he was just a good guy, but he went and said to a patient, Mabel, I took him aside and I said, she will never listen to you now. She is a black woman of a certain age and you called her by her first name. And he was like, oh, I was just trying to be friendly. And it's like, I know, I'm not mad at you. I'm not, you didn't, you weren't being, doing this in any way with a mean spirit, but I'm letting you know. It is a more formal society. I mean, you don't do that. You will call her by her first name forever. You do not sit on her bed. You know, you know, sometimes people do that to thinking that they're being friendly. If she tells you that you can, that's one thing, but you go in there and if you want, you could have called her Miss Mabel. That would have been okay. But once you called her Mabel, she is now not hearing you. She will look you in the eye, she will be polite, but you are no longer her physician. It's interesting because you, you've touched on a few things, right? So one, don't sit on people's beds with your outside clothes on talking about cultural competency. It's <laughs> one of the things I heard. Um, but also it sounds like, you know, this is, you know, bias, a conscious or unconscious, but also microaggressions. So as we're talking about risk factors and we're talking about um, the way that that plays a role in, 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 in health, and I'm thinking specifically about a study that recently came out from Boston University that has tied experiences of racism to increases in black women's heart disease risk. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about how you all think weathering and some of these kind of external stressors also pose a risk factor when we're thinking of heart health in addition to the behaviors of individuals. So Dr. Galati, I'll let you start. Yeah, so else. you know, in our new risk score that just got came out in the last few weeks, it actually puts into the risk assessment social determinants of health. And social determinants of health is part of the risk factors for heart disease and, and experiencing racism is part of an experience that does elevate at risk. That study in particular did show that people who experienced <coughs> racial ra racism, they were at a much higher risk of cardiovascular disease. For example, if a, if a woman experienced you know, the inability to get a loan for a house that they want, 
that they can live then in a certain neighborhood, so they're in a certain zip code, exposed to pollution potentially, but also the experience of being denied or being treated differently than somebody who might be of a different race and able to get a better loan, knowing that you've been treated differently results in chronic stress and ultimately can increase the risk of heart disease. And <clears throat> I think we underappreciate that in, in many of our patients. And so then how do we, as we're also talking about the lack of diversity in the provider pool, right? So you are, Dr. Ellis, you are a cardiothoracic surgeon, board, board certified? Yes. How many black women are board certified cardiothoracic surgeons out there in the well, United States? Well, I was the third and the board was founded in uh, 1947. I think that deserves a round of applause. She said she was the third and the board was founded in 1947? Yeah. Uh, right now there are about eight, eight of us. We, we know each other. <laughs> um, so, and I was, there was also a, a book that uh, came out um, I just wanted the name, um, but just talking about le legacy. legacy. It just ca it's just came amazing. out, you know, where we at one point had seven black medical schools for the HBCUs, and now it's down to two: Meharry and Howard. And if you know, when it talks about all those docs that weren't created, taking care of all of those people. Um, and, and yes, I was the third, but had I known I was going to be the third, I probably wouldn't have done it mm. because, you know, I really was the only woman. I was the first woman, uh, first black woman in my program to, uh, to finish and they didn't really know how to deal with me. I mean, they you know, they couldn't treat me like one of the boys and I made them be gentlemen, which kind of threw them a little bit. Um, but you know, you don't really always want to be out there at, at the point. And so that you know, you need to have a critical mass so people are comfortable. And I don't think we've reached that in cardiology. Um, and, or for sure not in surgery and for sure not in cardiac surgery. And so, you know, when I say I can name them, I can name all eight. And Dr. Galati, final, I'm gonna pose this final question to you because we're running out of time. What do you think we need to do to increase kind of critical mass and diversify the healthcare workforce in this particular area? Well, we need to be proactively recruiting women, telling that women from diverse backgrounds, they need to be here. It's the leading killer. The only way we'll enter the community is with them. And so we need to be friend more female friendly, which really we've done a bad job of really making it seem like you're welcome here. And I think it's the greatest job. So, you know, that we need to have more women at the table so that we can change the statistics, so we can change research, so that we can get more women into trials. All the changes that have happened in the recent years, I will say a big portion of it has been a result of having women at the table but we're not invited to every table and we really need to change that. Thank you so much, Dr. Ellis, Dr. Golati. We are just about out of time and so we'll have to leave it there. I could ask many more questions and talk to you all for many more minutes, but unfortunately that's not what's gonna happen today. So I wanna thank you for joining me and uh, the audience. Thank you.
And thank you to all of you for watching here in person and online. That concludes our program today. For more of these important conversations, sign up for Washington Post subscription. Get a free trial by visiting wapo.st backslash live. I'm going to say that one more time in case anybody didn't catch it. Wapo.st backslash live. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.